Let's get started. Thank you for those of you who've braved the Adelaide humidity. That's a sign of true commitment to music and art because it is an extraordinarily different heat out there, isn't it? We're, you do feel that we're conscious that music and uh, like the weather is going through different permutations that we're walking through. It's an extraordinary um, pleasure to host these festival forums. My name's Tom Wright. I grew up on Bunwurrung land. We meet today here on the banks of the Torrens in Ghanayata, land of the Ghana people, and we pay our respects, as we always do, to Ghana people for their ongoing custodianship of the land, an acknowledgement that this riverbank has always been a site of ritual, of song, of music, and of truth-telling. It's with great pleasure that we speak today to our guests, both international and local. Joining me on stage... Sitting next to me, Chichi, Chichi Nwanuku. Chichi's a double bassist. She's been instrumental in creating opportunities for talented black and ethnically diverse musicians through the Chinake Orchestra and the Chinake Junior Orchestra, commissioning new works and championing historical composers of diverse heritage and by establishing scholarships with the major US conservatoires. She also created the ABORPS Salomon Prize, which celebrates unsung heroes working in the ranks of British orchestras. A professor and fellow of the Royal Academy of Music, Chichi was awarded OBE for services to music, and in 2021 she was named the first ambassador for intergenerational music making, a charity which aims to bring generations together through innovative music therapy and creative projects. She's featured on the Power List, which is Britain's 100 most influential black people, four years in a row, isn't it? We'll be there forever. As a broadcaster for TV and radio, Chichi has worked with the BBC, Sky Arts, Scala Radio and Classic FM. You're no stranger to Australian sh uh, shores, but welcome to Adelaide, Chichi. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> uh, moving over, so I, I'll get to William last, moving over, uh, sitting o what I would call OP, over on your right, Ashok Clowder. Ashok started to learn the cello at the age of eight after requesting to learn the double bass but being told that the family car was not big enough and that the repertoire for the cello was so much better. All these years later, Ashok is now indisputably recognised as the leading half-Indian, quarter-Irish, quarter-Czech cellist in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> Chamber music's a particular love of Ashok's and has formed a large part of his life. In fact, he is the co-founder of the Highgate International Ch Chamber Music Festival. He's performed in ensembles such as the Atea Quartet, Fibonacci Sequence, Ensemble 360, Jigsaw Players, Cello Octet, Cellophony, Cellophony? Cellophony, thank you, and the Barbaroli Quartet, and also proud to be a member of Chinake, obviously. Thank you and welcome, thank Ashok. <laughs> and next to Ashok, Linton Stevens. British Jamaican musician Linton originally hails from the Wirral, which, you, as you will discover, gives you a great deal of connection with Adelaide because half of Adelaide in the old days came from Birkenhead and Tranmere. <laughs> so you'll, you'll, you'll see familiar surnames, shall we say. Um, he took up the bassoon at 16. He went on to study as both a junior and undergrad at the Royal Northern College of Music and later as a prestigious Oglesby, Oglesby I should say, scholar for his postgraduate studies from which he graduated with distinction. 
as a, um, a facet of his career is that he particularly enjoys, enjoys broadcasting. He regularly presents orchestral concerts for Radio 3, BBC I should say, and has fronted the show Sounds Connected and Music Matters. He currently regularly presents Radio 3's award-nominated Classical Fix and has appeared on Scala Radio as well. As a freelancer, he plays with many of the leading professional orchestras. You've played with BBC Philharmonic, Royal Liverpool, English National Opera, English National Ballet, Opera North, Manchester Camerata, and the Aurora Orchestra. He currently holds the chair of Second Bassoon with Chinookay Orchestra. Welcome to you, Linton. Thank you. <laughs> and it's a profound welcome back to William Barton. William's Australia's leading didgeridoo player. He's a composer, an instrumentalist, he's a vocalist. He started learning the instrument from his um, uncle, Arthur Peterson, an elder of the Wanyi, Ladil and Kalkadunga people. He was working from an early age with traditional dance groups, fusion, rock, jazz bands, orchestras, string quartets, mixed ensembles. He collaborates and he's a force unto himself. Throughout his diverse career, he's forged a path in the classical music world, from the London and Berlin Philharmonic Orchestras to orchestra events at Westminster Abbey, at Anzac Cove and Gallipoli, and of course, the Beijing Olympics. His, his awards include the winner of the Best Original Score for a main stage production at the STAs, winner of the Best Classical Album, an aria for Birdsong at Dusk in 2012, and in 2021 he was a recipient of the prestigious Don Banks Music Award from the AC. With his prodigious musicality and building on his Kalkadunga heritage, William has vastly expanded the horizons of the didgeridoo, and it is a profound pleasure to have you here with us this year. William. Um, Chi Chi, I might, I might, if you obviously, uh, it's your company and it's an extraordinary privilege for us all to have Chinake here in, um, here in Adelaide. It's just remarkable. But might just start with a provocation just to get the conversation going. Um, classical music in Australia in our post-colonial environment is increasingly tied in with ideas of culture and culture is tied in with ideas of colonialism. How do we... Uh, break down the perception that classical music in its orchestral, in its chamber, in all of its forms, is just another form of colonising white privilege? Massive question. Um, everything begins with education. Um, starting points are simply not the same for people of lower economic backgrounds. It's not, it's not um, cheap. To, to be a classical musician. You've got to get an instrument, you have to have one-to-one -one lessons. It's all expensive. And, and it's not as though people of color were not always involved in music since time began. And I think that the, the mission of Chineke has been not just showcasing and, and, and giving you know, presenting um, opportunities for um, people of ethnicity, but also our people from the past, our composers, who none of whom um, any of us had played before. Um, our very first Chineke concert in 2015, I think the whole orchestra was the first time we'd played a piece by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And he was a leading mixed, African mixed heritage composer who started at the Royal College of Music at the age of 15 on the same day as Vaughan Williams and Gustav Holst, whose music we hear every single day of the week on the radio. Every time you turn the radio on, you'll hear one of their pieces. And, and so it's just 
been a huge awakening and a huge education for me to start with because I've learned so much of what um, I, I didn't know that we even had a place in the industry. So education is, is the beginning of it. And then just, it's extraordinary when people say to me now, in fact, since George Floyd was murdered, people say, well, how can I show that, you know, I, want, I believe in equality and I believe in inclusion? And, and how, how can I demonstrably uh, be, be not, uh, not appear to be racist or, you know, whether you want to call it racist or just excluding people without even being aware that you're doing that. Because I think a lot of people aren't, just don't think about it. And so I encourage people to be actively anti-racist. And by that I mean, and when people question that, they say, well, what, can't I just say I'm not racist? And I said, well, you can. But if you're not anti-racist, what are you? It's quite simple. And, and then when you're creating you know, groups and small chamber groups or any kind of thing that you might get involved in, just look to invite somebody that doesn't necessarily look like you, talk like you, walk like you, dress like you. And just because they don't look like you, walk like you, talk like you, doesn't mean that they're any lesser than you. And, and I think it's just this, you know, starting from a, point of understanding that all of us are equal and and it's just getting used to that now we have huge stereotypes you know pasted across people of of color that we're dangerous we're lazy that we're there's so many things that that have to be broken down we we've, we've even been brought up in that way and so it's just a case of demystifying a lot of the things that we've been taught wrongly from day one what about these cultural associations that we have with music, the way in which it gets loaded with cultural assumptions and so on, they're, they're the biggest impositions. Um, well, maybe, Linton, this is just one for you. What's it... Um, you'll be performing at the Adelaide Town Hall tomorrow and tomorrow night. These kind of neoclassical um, halls and rooms are quite intimidating. Not everybody feels welcome walking through their portals. What can we do to actually create a music that's inclusive and acknowledges um, the kind of uh, diverse set of conversations that surrounds it. How do we get this kind? Of, how do we unpack it? Again, that's a massive question, I think, and kind of to echo a lot of what Chichi said. Classical music has existed on a very particular trajectory for a very long time, and it's existed like that relatively unchallenged. Um, and of course, the 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 thing that we can't necessarily control is, is the, or that I as an individual can't control is the image of classical music. Yeah. Um, but what I can do is contribute to moving classical music away from that. It, whether that's by the, the programming I choose, or also you, you talked about the, the town hall and, and the setting, it's an incredible town hall, but also the culture of, we, we talk about the culture within classical music, but one thing that we don't often talk about is the culture of how people consume music. Um, so this idea of being sat in a room quietly, not clapping in between movements, this kind of thing. Um, these are things that, you know, if you go to any other kind of concert, you don't see. Um, and unless you're taught how to do that, it can feel like a really, um, it can feel like a scary place to come into. So it's, it's for me, uh, and I, I do a lot of work with the orchestras in the UK, um, 
around diversity and equality. And for me, it's that the first thing is to always, it's something that's rife in classical music is tradition. Yeah. This word and, and every, all the connotations that come with tradition. And what happens so often is that people accept this tradition and then they nail their opinion around this tradition to a massive ignorance and are so hard to move. But for me, it's always about tradition is good if it serves as many people as possible. Uh, and if it doesn't, then question, is this a, a tradition that we want to keep and is it really serving what we do? So to kind of come circle back to your question, it's always about questioning what we do. It's questioning everything and, and saying, is this really the best way to do this? And are there other ways? And is it okay to do these things just because, or to not do these things just because that's the way they've always been done? It's a, it's a pertinent question that we're wrestling with in Australia at the moment to do with education and to do with the way art works. Uh, so often on a conservative side, Shakespeare becomes, for instance, a kind of a shibboleth. It represents a whole range of cultural assumptions, cultural powers, um, things that have been inherited from the old world, ongoing processes of colonisation. Now, of course, Shakespeare in itself is n not necessarily any of those things, but can very easily become them. Things can get loaded into it. And I suppose, likewise, so too can Brahms or Elga, if we want it to be. Some things do have cultural associations that we want to give them. Um, and what I'm fascinated about your company, Chichi, is it's a site of resistance in a way, without throwing the baby out. It's at least trying to drain some of the bathwater. Music is being returned to actually a broader base, isn't it? Both of practice and of um, reception. Yeah, it really is. And you know, one of the things that Linton just touched on about all these supposed rules that we have to stand by, not clapping between movements, uh, only started creeping in, in the 19th century. And I've, I've read letters from Mozart to his father when one of his symphonies was being premiered. And halfway through the exposition, exposition, halfway through the first movement of, of a concerto or a symphony, people in the audience were clapping and cheering in the middle of the mu mu music, like yeah. in a jazz, when someone had just had a solo, like a jazz solo, where they clapped as soon as that solo ended. And for Mozart, that was a sign of success, that everyone loved his piece of music. And that was totally acceptable. And, you know, our audiences, um, for Chineke concerts in London at least, make quite a lot of noise in between movements, and it's absolutely fantastic. And I... I think it's it's something to be expected if you know if because if, if we've we've kind of changed the look of the audience as well who comes through those intimidating front doors like the South Bank you know the Royal Festival Hall um, are people that you wouldn't know that I've never seen my whole career before that and and of course we can't expe expect them to have to know these apparent rules of how to sit through a symphony for 50 minutes without clapping or moving. And so we expect um, fresh, authentic reactions from the audience as well. Adelaide is a notoriously polite place and I can't promise that we'll fall out of our habit of staying in respectful silence between movements. We'll do our, we'll do our best to be as anarchic as we can. Um, I'll, I'll be surprised. Ashok, um, I'd, I'd love... We should actually just open up the conversation a little bit more before we even get on to the programme of what we can look forward to. Of course, when we talk about classical, the, the word classical, that too is a loaded term, isn't it? We're very aware here in Australia of a tradition which goes back tens of thousands of years. 
uh, uh, traditions from the subcontinent, traditions from the Indonesian archipelago. We have many classical music traditions that we draw upon. But here we're talking about a particular form of classical music, aren't we? Are we, are we dissolving the boundaries around it? Hmm. Um, well, I, I think some traditions are worth keeping and some traditions it's our responsibility to, to break. Um, and I think no one wants to water down the um, the actual concept of of classical music being something that you know a composer puts all of their soul into you know hundreds of hours of of thought and uh, like thousands of hours of study and and understanding you know um, structure and so many so many different elements of of skill to, to my, my my wife actually natalie she's a composer and a violinist and i know how much she puts into composing her music it's everything for her um and and when we're interpreting classical music we we go about it in a you know quite an intense way uh we spend a lot of time discussing it trying to delve into what the composer's really aiming for but then but then when we go on stage, I think it's our responsibility, and I think a lot of performers fall down with this, it's our responsibility to make that accessible to absolutely anybody. Um, and I think from the way you walk on stage, um, the way you bow, the way you smile, or whatever you do, it's, it's your job to not make the audience feel like it's, it's them and it's us, because we know all of this stuff about music, and you know we're gonna close you off and, and do our thing. It's our, it's our job to actually say, hey, there's this wonderful thing we want to share with you. Um, and I, th I think that's something that you, 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 know, you quite often see this kind of boundary that exists at the edge of the stage. And I think in Chinake, we're very, very, very keen to sort of just get rid of that without, without uh, at all um, getting rid of any of the detail and quality of the actual music making. Um, William, I'm intrigued on your um, opinions in this matter just because your instrument, the didgeridoo, is of such... It's a profound instrument of ritual significance and many other things as well, and it's not necessarily designed to be an orchestral instrument. Um, what's your take on the idea of what constitutes something being classical? There's, um, of course, different... Hello, everybody. How are you today? <laughs> uh, firstly, it's great... Honoured to be here on stage with these wonderful musicians and Chi Chi and my brother here. And be here. Thank you, Uncle Neil, for inviting me as well. Um, I guess the first thing is the, you know, we talk about breakdown boundaries and, and, you know, maybe roadblocks, you know, and because of um, our situation, where we come from and what we wear, what we look like and, and the languages we speak and the education. Yes, it's very important, you know. In, in all aspects, you know, L the education of, I, I often say, um, I don't like to use the word educate because I don't want to educate you, I want to welcome you into my comfort zone and take you on that journey um, and that way. And so we still do that through the art form of music um, and our, our cultural heritage. Obviously, my journey is a little bit different because I have a very non-Western classical instrument which is the Yudaki, the did you do? And it's from this land of many thousands of years. And it's a language that's been passed down from generation to generation, an oral tradition 
when my uncle passed away, um, you know, his his brothers, his his other elders circle, they would sing did you do rhythms to me, and so I had this. It's a it's a the the flip side of you know reading, you know to, um, you know having wonderful musicians and the power of the musicianship of turning these notes into music and the storyline of that composer who was, I guess, composing uh, about the nationalistic uh, feeling of their landscape. You know, so we're here talking about the did you do, the yidaki. How, how do we put that into the classical orchestra? Well, simply put, you take away the boundaries by going in there with a pure, innocent um, um, power of the landscape, you know, and I've been very fortunate to be a part of that legacy, to be here right now, standing, sitting on this on this uh, platform here, um, having this yarn. Because, you know, classical music in Australia is very young, you know? It's very, very young. And so you go to the UK, you go to Germany, you go to other, other countries, and, you know, we have the same, like, um, like an elderly group, they'll go to um, a concert that's really, really, really far out in avant-garde and they'll be like, oh, that was all right, Yaganol, yeah. Whereas here, it's like, oh, that's, <laughs> it's a bit different because it's like, this is, it, you know, it's sophistication, you know. But I want to, like, just put it out there. It's, um, our culture is just as sophisticated in terms of the internal heartbeat that resonates and if you if you break down that notion, you can walk forward under under other people's country, and and ask for their their welcoming, you know, and you get welcome into their landscape. You know, I remember being performing with in the with the Osraba, um Philharmonic Orchestra uh, in uh, near Janáček's Castle many many years ago, and I remember the next day my friends took me out to Janáček's Castle, and I saw the landscape, and I felt what that feeling was the way that Janacek composed, you know, and that's just the creative side of, I guess, being in tune, coming from that sort of linear, the linear journey of our old people and that lullaby that still remains with us, that sometimes we miss out on in our modern day and age, you know, in our nine to five jobs or our nighttime jobs. And we, you know, I, I, I see that where we are now as a humanity, you know, we don't have to sit around the campfires that often, you know, or around the piano. You know, it still happens, but this stage, the stage that we perform in or on is our platform of expression and is, is our, it's our, as, as we say, it's our, it's our sort of um, responsibility to connect because we are all part of a linear, a linear line of, um, like, it's in our DNA, you know, of uh, where our mob's from, where our mother country's from, but we're interpreting into a classical world, which is pretty amazing. And what I love about the classical world, like Western classical and the instruments, is the sonic range. You need all those instruments to create or replicate or interpret the sonic range of what nature actually is. And that's the song lines, and that's what... That's why it's so powerful when you see an orchestra or you hear a, a mixed ensemble. And, and then what makes it more special is when you actually hear the honesty and truth of the musicians come through it. And that's, that's where we're at right now. So in Australia right now, we're in Chi Chi, 
you know, and the brothers and sisters who will, who will be performing my work tomorrow night, but also um, Countryman Deborah Cheatham's work. Uh, we're a part of a, a great chapter in Australian history where we're actually acknowledging that there is um, the, the classical music of the Australian landscape, but with these modern modern instruments, you know, that are from wood. They're still made from wood. Mine's a bit, a bit more dodgy, though. I've got gaff tape around it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and a few more cracks. But, you know, it's a special journey, you know, and uh, it's always important to acknowledge, you know, our teachers, our mentors, you know, because they've... They've helped pay the way for us to be here as well, you know, and our elders, you know, and so it's our responsibility in this modern day and age to keep that spirit alive. And it's not just the elders living, but the elders past as well, isn't it? Um, this is this um, sacred idea of connection with those who've gone before. Um, Chichi, I'm intrigued by the work that you're doing to expand the canon through commissioning new work, but also through the revival of work that has previously been marginalised, um, either through omission or sometimes through deliberate and uh, racist exclusion. Um, tell us a bit about... We, we know Valerie Coleman because her, her group, The Winds, have, has been to Australia, but as a composer, I'm, I think you... I, I'm assuming you'll be debuting her piece tomorrow night, uh, Red Clay and Mississippi Delta. Tell us a bit about Valerie Coleman. Valerie Coleman was a, a fantastic flautist and the founder of Imani Winds. Um, who we have seen in Australia. That you've, that who you've seen. Mm. I think, um, Linton, are you the best person to answer this one? Do you know more about Valerie? I, tell tell I us about Valerie. I don't know much about Valerie, but I can tell you about the piece. So yes. the piece is based, uh, she herself is from Mississippi. Uh, the piece is called Red Clay and Mississippi Delta, where the skin colour of the kinfolk who live in Mississippi is said to look like the red clay on the banks of the river. Uh, and the way it's kind of, she, it's a really great quintet actually, it's a fantastic one to play and it's a real, <laughs> actually Chichi said this yesterday, not about the, um, not about our piece, but it, about the Prokofiev that you're gonna play. But I said to her, oh, it's a real showstopper. She said, yeah, and it's a real heart stopper as well. Uh, it's the same for the Coleman, because it's just a real high energy and really virtuosic for every player. But the way she's written it, uh, so there's a lot of jazz influence there, but um, each instrument within the quintet, so the uh, flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and French horn, has a chance, has a moment to, to shine and show their virtuosity. Uh, and it's just a really fun piece. It's one that you, you'll, you'll hear and you'll smile. Um, and, and we're all kind of, those of us with, you know, when we haven't got things in our mouth blowing on our instruments, we're all smiling too because it's a great piece. Um, it's a, and you're keen obviously to bring it into the repertoire. This is kind of what I'm steering towards is that we need to expand what we see as being canonical. Um, there's this canon of usually dead white males who make this music and until someone introduces it, it's not going to get changed. Exactly that. And we've, we've um, I mean, it was such a privilege to... I knew when um, Neil uh, invited us to come to Australia that we had to make an absolute direct connection with the indigenous people here. We weren't really comfortable with coming and not seeing um, people like William and Deborah Cheatham. So I just thought I'm going to go full out and, and uh, commission both of them to write something for us. And uh, that's a huge privilege for us and to be with them on the stage in their country for us, you know, at our, de at our debut concert in, in Australia. Um, and I think we've, we've probably 
commissioned about 12 or 13 other pieces by living composers in Europe, in, in the UK. And this is <coughs> incredibly, incredibly important. And one, one of the things that I say to all of my Chineke colleagues is that it's as important, our, our conductors, our soloists, our composers, our, their, their story, their future, their ev everything about their lives as they live it with, at the same time as us is just as important as the people playing the music. We've got to, you know, they've got to have all, all of the opportunities as much as we, we do. And, and you know, I, one, of, one of my colleagues in Chineke said to me, so, you know, we talk about the great canon. How, how do we get into the great canon? What, how, you know, how can we, our composers, be like Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms? Why are we not part of the great canon? What, what can we do to, to, to get into it? And I just say, there's just one word, really, repetition. And it's by playing the, the music of these composers over and over and over again that it's almost like a drug so that when people start to hear, say, Coleridge Taylor, um, you know, we, we've played quite a few of his pieces now, and our audiences get into that sound world and start to crave it like a drug. And the more we play it, the more you know, the audience is going to fall for it, and then eventually it'll get into the canon. And it's what's happened, and I've been presenting programs for Classic FM, and they want me to present programs specifically um, including music that we don't normally hear, dead white composers, dead male composers, as you mentioned. And almost every program, I had another piece of Coleridge-Taylor. And the Classic FM have a thing called the Classic FM Hall of Fame, and... They called me after my second series and said, Chichi, you made history. First black composer into the Classic FM Hall of Fame because the, the listeners vote. And you have to, he said, um, there's 300 composers in the Hall of Fame. Okay, he's at position 295, but he's still, he's in there now. And that's the start. And then Florence Price got into it as well. And it's just by re repetition. That's all it is. So... Um, and the great thing is, is that what's happened is that the conversation with all the orchestras across the UK, the conversation has started. Now they're beginning to borrow our pieces. Uh, well, our pieces, we don't own them, but um, they're wanting to play them. The London Symphony Orchestra, the London Philharmonic, the Philharmonia, Scottish Chamber Orchestra, the Royal National Scottish Orchestra, they're all borrowing our scores. And it started. If I may come back in on that as well, um, a, a really important thing is, um, again, so much of what Chichi said, but there's kind of two elements to it, and coming back to an earlier question about how can we change this canon, there's an internal and an external thing. So when I'm doing work with a lot of orchestras, I'll always say, you know, how does a classical composer, how does a work become a traditional piece of classical music work. And actually, there's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done inside. So one thing that I say when I'm talking to the orchestras and often shocks a lot of people is, as a bassoonist, for me to become a bassoonist, for me to work professionally, I need to learn the Mozart bassoon concerto. It gets asked in every single audition. Now, that sounds fine, but actually, the implication of that is, for me to step into this industry, I have to pass through a door of male whiteness. I cannot, I cannot be a bassoonist without going through that door and learning that piece. So then I asked them, how many of you 
on orchestral panels when you're doing auditions. How many of you, or the players in the orchestra, how many of you have ever done an excerpt by a black composer? Silence. How many of you have ever done an excerpt by a female composer? Silence. Like, and now to say that, it sounds ridiculous. And yet, we get so much pushback. And actually, the first thing, when we started uncovering all of these composers, Coleridge Taylors, Florence, Florence Price, all of these, the first thing, and, and it's an automatic response without thinking. People say, well, we don't, you know, these are the great pieces and we don't want to change the quality of the music we're playing. And actually, what people are discovering now is, um, and another question I ask is, so do, do we program by what the audience wants or does the audience respond to what we program? It's, it's a mixture of both and it's what Chichi was saying, if we, if we play it, it becomes in the kind of sound realms of the audience and then we know we can sell it. But at the same time, it's a conscious choice and it's been a conscious choice for the last however many hundred years to exclude these composers. But now what we're realizing is this was never about quality because the quality exists in these, these pieces and we're seeing it in the orchestras across the UK because they're starting to roll out these pieces and, and the audiences are already immediately starting to respond to them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a very famous festival that I, that we'll, I won't name, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're, we're playing at one of these festivals, a very, very big international festival. And when they asked us about um, the programme, you know, I, I sent them what we would love to play, and they said, oh, but our audience won't like that. Because it, I said, but how do you know if they've never heard it? So it, it's this chicken and egg. Yeah. And it, how do they know? You know they're not going to like it if they've never heard it. So that's where we still are. And again, to use theatre as the analogy, if you only appease the audience, you just end up doing Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet every year. The canon collapses if it isn't expanded by artists. Mm. Um, audiences can't expand a canon. They, they're not in that position of privilege, are they? Only artists can actually help it. Um, you've mentioned um, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor a few times, and it's, it's just a useful note that here in Adelaide in 1926, an entire evening of Coleridge Taylor was part of the season for the Music Society at that time, not at the Town Hall, at the Exhibition Hall. I think it was Hiawatha and a few other smaller pieces, which would have been only, only 10 or 15 years after his death. Um, so Coleridge Taylor in a uh, musical outpost, as Adelaide was and is, you know, was, was not unknown, was part of the repertoire. So in some cases, it's not even um, uncovering something, it's reviving something that's previously been neglected. Um, again, it, it, the question might sound more provocative than it's meant to be. Has this neglect been willful? Has, has there been a kind of a whitewashing of classical music? What, Ashok, Linton? I have no idea um, whether that's... Uh, Chi-Chi? Yeah. I, I would say yes. Yeah. Yep. And there's the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers, you know, we have to wait to be told what we can and what we can't do. And we currently still don't have anyone from our ethnic backgrounds who hold the keys to the gates. And, and who are ad advocating for advo that yeah. as well. And so we have to always you know, persuade and cajole and just say, look, try this and how about that? And um, I could, you know, I've got endless stories, but we won't go there. But we've, we've um, you know, Coleridge, I've seen the letters between Elgar and Jaeger, talking about Coleridge Taylor. So I, I know what was going on behind his back, even though, you know, when he, when Jaeger helped 
Coleridge Taylor get one of his first commissions, which was this wonderful piece for the um, Three Choirs Festival. It's called the um, Ballad in A Minor, and we, it was the first piece that we opened our very first concert with. It's a glorious piece, lasts 13 minutes. It raises the roof, and it's a great opener for a concert. And it was so popular that um, they started panicking, and there, there were letters from, because Elgar was best mates with Jaeger, Jaeger is the person who wrote the um, da da dee da. Which which movement's that? Uh, um, Nimrod is is about Jaeger, and there, there's letters from Elgar just saying, you know, you know, this, he's getting he's getting above his station. He wasn't supposed to he wasn't supposed to get that famous. Let's keep him down. We'll we'll teach this young whippersnapper something yet. And you know. And it's not about the colour, and, and all of this is in the letters. And uh, it's an extraordinary thing, because I, they, re they recognised that this was huge talent, but they didn't want him to step out of what was supposed to be his place. Well, in a similar spirit, a, a composer we can genuinely say we're less familiar with, William Grant Still is part of your programme too. Let's tell us a bit about William Grant Still, because it's a remarkable story, isn't it? Um, who'd like to pick that one up? William, in that. William Grant Still. I've, well, he, he went to the same school as Florence Price. They both came from Ar Arkansas. And, you know, he, he was an incredible talent. Wonderful pianist as well. Condu huge conductor. He, he, if you look at his biography, he probably accumulated more firsts than anyone in the world of music. And there he was. He, you know, he'd made his way to New York, often to be, to be seen... In, in Harlem, which is where a lot of the black composers and a lot of black culture was getting really, um, you know, making its, its sound and, um, in Harlem at the time, the early the 1920s, 1930s. Composers like William Dawson were playing his one and only symphony this, later this year. But for example, how many of you have heard, I've got rhythm? Gershwin, you all know that piece. Listen to William Grant Still's Symphony Number no. 1, written 10 years before. I think you'll recognise a tune. <laughs> okay, and, and Gershwin was often to be seen... He was rubbing shoulders with William Grant Still. He, they were, he was often to be seen hanging out in Harlem, listening to these composers like Still... Dawson, etc., um, Nathaniel Dett, and just appropriating their music because it was fantastic. And it, it went into it. He ended up writing an opera, the first black opera, Porgy and Bess. Uh, and that's what we sort of pr primarily, primarily know him for. But you're playing um, Folk Suite tomorrow. What, what's, what is, um, what's Folk Suite like, Ashok? It's great fun. It's really good fun. I mean, it's very accessible. Um, you will. It's, in fact, we're doing it in a in a different version to its original. So, oh. I get to play the viola part, and Chichi gets to play the bass uh, to the gets to play the cello part. Because um, we we're doing it in a reduced form. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's great fun. Lots of really good rhythm, really beautiful tunes. Yeah. So in the midst of this, William, we've got a program tomorrow night here at the Town Hall, which has Prokofiev and has Coleman, as we've mentioned, and Coleridge Taylor, but it also has your piece, The Rising of the Mother Country. What can you tell us about The Rising of the Mother Country? I guess um, The Rising of the Mother Country is that uh, we all exist of the earth and uh, 
we all come from a place, you know, that, that we can reflect upon in life. And um, I'm going through this chapter in my, my life as, as a composer now, uh, which I'm very grateful for, but, you know, so many ideas and just how to, I guess, reinterpret, reinterpret some of my journey from over 20 years ago, you know, from going from that young kid, actually more than 20 years ago, you know, sitting in the car in Mount Ida listening to ABC Classics and listening to the sonic wor world of, of uh, the orchestra you know, on ABC Classics and then turning out and putting the tape player on and listening to my ACDC, you know, as a young kid, you know, and then going at Bush, you know, so I guess that sort of, all those elements are in that landscape of the piece where I want everyone to, to feel that they can reconnect with, with their history. You know, this is a journey piece where um, the rising of mother country, we come, com come from the mother country and we go back to the mother country through the lullaby that was sung to us by our ancestors or by our mother and father as a young child or a baby in the womb. You know, mum used to play classical music to me as a child and before I was born into the world, you know, so that classical seed was already there. Like, say, I'm fami I, I got familiar with that, you know, that, that sound world. And so me as a young kid, I'm, like, eager to, like, wow, that's, there's so much sound in that, that, one, that one piece of music, you know. That sound is an interpretation of that com composer from overseas, you know. And then, you know, working with the, the likes of Peter Skullthorpe, meeting his music first with the Golden String Quartet back in 2001 at the Australian Festival of Chain Music. Um, you know, that connection of what Australian music might be or is, you know, from his interpretation. And so this is sort of my chance coming full circle to, to, um, to give back in a, in a way and always acknowledge that, that song line that always was there that was always existent, you know, and so I like to say sometimes, you know, you sing to that, that riverbed that might have no water in it, but when you do sing to it, it'll flow, but it was always always flowing. We were just not in tune with it enough, you know, and so now, you know, we talk about change in, in, um, in presenting more, uh, you know, indigenous composers or composers of eth ethnic backgrounds. Um, we... we we are a part of the, the engine room of change, and that's, that's, a, that's a hard process, as Chi Chi was talking about, and all of us are, are we talking about this, this process, you know, and the roadblocks, so many roadblocks in the way, you know, so my roadblock was, um, you know, like, I didn't know how to read or write music, you know, as a, as a, as a young person, but my music was up here and was here, you know, so that, that was my, my gift, that, um, I was very grateful to, to, I guess, have as a young kid growing up and, and it sort of just went from there. So that piece that you'll be hearing tomorrow night is the world premiere of, of like-minded journey souls of the earth coming together as one. And so, you know, it's a really great thing what Chi Chi has achieved and, and her vision, you know, to have, you know, this ensemble bringing people together from from around the world, you know, it is our our unity and our United Nations through the music, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and so it's a very important thing. And the other thing I, I love for uh, the musicians to do in, in some of my works is to actually sing or think about even humming, you know, 
what their internal rhythm, pulse, heartbeat or tone that they might reflect upon, you know, with an image of, of from childhood, you know, or from a loving a loving image from their, you know, family member, you know, and through the through the breath, you know, we have all this memory through language. And so it's so so important to to um keep that, that language alive. You know. um, a solo piece or an uh, ensemble piece? Ensemble piece. That's kind of just useful to clarify because yeah. so often when you're playing the didge you can f feel like an island <laughs> unto yourself, can't you? It's a much uh, more interesting sort of and dynamic uh, currents when it's in listening, a listening instrument as well as a breathing instrument. Uh, aston well, astonishing something to look forward to. There's, it feels... Um, timely and uh, I'm sure it's not by accident but when we have these La Nina cycles of weather here in, on the land here in Australia and the water starts to pour and in, um, in William's uh, lands there at Mount Isa I was just observing before 22 millimetres of rain again and the rain's coming up through the river and down to Bulia, down to Clancurry and so on. The things, are, things rise up, don't they? They come up through the land, the water rises. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a moment in the score where, you know, because I write in Sibelius, you know, I can write now, but um, you know, just hear, hearing the, the MIDI, you know, does your head in, uh, but then hearing for the first time in rehearsals, you know, even though it's still, you know, massaging little points here and there, you know, it's really a magical moment, you know, for, for, for me as the composer, you know, um, but there is a moment in there where that's what I'm visualising, the rising of mother country, you know, um, coming up through the earth, the language, yeah. the history, the DNA, the blood hardships of our people um, and the hope and joy, you know. I'm not going to ferry code it, but there is, the, you know, the, the majorish, feel, majorish feeling and then the, you know, the, the minorish feeling, you know. But when someone says, pr um, this is a, a, a reference, a point, a point of reference. So w working with um, film directors, um, I found or observed that my interpretation of what proud musically in my head is totally different sometimes to what you know a visual person might be, like a, a director I'm talking about. And so this one scene I, I did, it was fairly minorish and, and it probably felt dark, but I felt that it was like a proud Aboriginal man standing up, whereas the, the director said, oh, no, that's too that way, you know. Um, and they wanted it more major, you know, in terms of the chord. But you know, yeah. So you sometimes <laughs> you've got to go with your heart, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort of, I just only bring this issue of water and rain up because if you look at Valerie Coleman's piece and talking about the Mississippi Delta, the river flows through her work and as an image, as a symbol, and quite possibly deeper as well. And this takes us to Deb Cheatham, who's a Yorta Yorta woman, and Yorta Yorta are river people, and people of the Murray and have a strong and profound relationship. The river flows through their sounds as well. And Deb's, you know, um, problematic relationship as a member of the Stolen Generations means you've got that extra level of pain and dislocation um, coming through it. So maybe just tell us a bit about Nyagurun, the piece that she's doing as part of Program 2, Chi-Chi. Obviously, Deb's not here, but um, you must be very pleased to pick this up, this wonderful piece. Yes, I'm, um, it's always wonderful to, you know, when you've never... A piece hasn't existed before, mm. and it's been created, and to be... You know, it's quite a big responsible, 
responsibility to have it in your hands and it just sort of emerges very from a very still place and then develops um, she's not heard us play it yet so uh, we're looking forward to, to, to you know playing it for her and getting her feedback um, I, I've talked too much <laughs> Ashok do you want to talk a little bit about Deborah's piece it means woven song mm. um, and that uh, it sort of start I think it's I think it's sort of the interweaving of different experiences different memories and it as you say it starts it's a very beautiful piece actually mm. um, uh, it's it, it starts from the same place that it actually uh, finishes as well. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> 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 but it, um, it's, it, 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 it's I don't I don't really know what else to say about it apart from um, you should hear it. It's mm. it's it's beautiful and it's always a joy for us to to have new beautiful uh, beautiful pieces to discover. Well, I, I know it's connected to an artist uh, who passed yeah. away a couple of years ago, and um, and. Deborah's written a series of pieces which are part of the, the woven, woven songs, song yeah. series, and this is another one of those which goes with a particular painting by this wonderful Aboriginal lady. Um, who and this particular work hangs in Dublin, where Chineke are going at the end of this year, actually, and I'm hoping that a group of us can go and play it in front. She wants us to p play it in front of that painting, and it's an extraordinary painting. It's also to do with the interweaving of art forms, really, mm. isn't it? Um, how in in some cultures, you know, you're not only a musician, but you're you're expressing yourself through multiple art forms, um, and I, th I think that's well. And and as a, a Yoda Yoda woman, uh, conscious of her tradition, the weaving of baskets is a um, a ritual of meeting and of um, of movement of through family and generations so you've got sort of those big scale tapestries of the kind that hang in the our embassies around well, Australian embassies the in large scale indige tapestries that hang in many of our major embassies but you've also got the smaller scale basket work the finger work the work of the mind and the body that yoda yoda woman have done for thousands of years um, I'm just looking forward to it on that level alone. Yeah. Such an astonishing voice. And that program, Program 2, has aforementioned William Grant Still's Folk Suite, but also a, a Rheinberger and some Schubert. So your positioning inside there is quite deliberate, isn't it? There's a, a very clear conversation taking place. Yeah, well, isn't the trout's all about water as well. <laughs> Schubert's <laughs> Trout Quintet. So yeah, you can find all these links if you look a little bit and then... You know, that's one of our sort of staple diet pieces that people ask for that piece a lot, and it's fun to play. It's always fun to play that. So this is what Ashok was referring to earlier: a bit of a bit of feeding, a, a bit of leading, and a bit of following on occasions when you're presenting <laughs> a, a program of work. Um, but it's wonderful to have two program two programs over two nights. It just gives us so much to look forward to over the next two nights. Just before we finish up, and I'll let you get back to your rehearsal which I'm sure is exhausting I'm just intrigued to go back to where you started Chi Chi uh, it's not an easy thing to become a musician and it's extremely expensive as you alluded to I mean the kind of I, I can only imagine what it was like to get access to a bassoon or to a cello the first time what can we do to actually broaden and expand the opportunities for um, musicians to enter what's come to be called the classical sphere how do we do this Lobby your MPs, government, because they're, they're in charge of everything. And, uh, and it's just, it's, I just think it's so important to learn an instrument. Every child should 
have, and it's, I think if you go back in time, before we had all of our sophisticated language and writing, how else did people communicate with each other other than through sounds, rhythms, that all meant something? I mean, when I'm in my father's village in Nigeria, there are certain words which are just like a rhythmic sound, and I know exactly what they mean. Um, and, and it's only in the 20th century that my father's language has, has been notated in a sort of English way. Um, it wasn't a written language until not that long ago. And I think finding, because across the world, I mean, just look at the state of the world even today, there's a terrible breakdown of communication, and that's why we end up with war. And if people could only communicate with each other and listen to each other, and, and I think music is the only subject that I know of where you're taught to listen, not just to yourself, but to each other. And, and of course, every child that learns an instrument is not going to become a professional musician. But even if you've learned it to a very elementary stage, I think the the skills that you learn are so transferable into any other walk of life. Um, just listing a few of them, you know, discipline, coordination, left hand, right hand, rep repetitive movements, listening, breathing, hearing, and sharing, teamwork. All of those things you learn from playing an instrument. And that's why the whole world needs to get better in touch with, with music. And I, at the moment, in our country, in, in the UK, um, I'm, from, I'm so old, I'm from that generation that we had free music in our school. So that's why I w was able to learn music, because it was free. And I'm the first of five children, and we didn't have money for music lessons. And, but now, they're stripping... Yeah all the arts, and especially music, out of all of the state schools, the free schools. And, and, and you know, it, of course, all of the other subjects, the, the STEM subjects, are, are very, very important. But they are... What about all those children who might not be able to do well in any of those STEM subjects? I mean, I was good at school, and, but I excelled outside the classroom in sports and music. And, and when we look at more and more school children being excluded because they're not fitting into this little box, I just think, you know, there's more trouble on the streets now than there ever was in my lifetime, I think. And I think it's because we're taking all the arts out of education. And in Adelaide, we have some very fine government high schools that specialise in music. But that's not quite the same thing, is it, as in your local comprehensive, actually having access to instruments and, um, and we, it, it further entrenches the idea that it's the, um, the pastime of the privileged. It, can, that's the, it needs to be accessible, not just something that you go to. It needs to be something that comes to you sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, it's a wonderful set of conversations and um, uh, it's going to be, I'm sure, very moving and entertaining a <laughs> couple of nights uh, coming up. Uh, wonderful to have you in the country. For those of you in the room or those of you who are listening through our um, streaming or recorded service, if you want a delight, go on YouTube and look up Ashok's name 
during the COVID lockdown, he and his wife played in their front yard to thank the NHS practitioners, and it's a wonderful thing to see their particular work in their front yard there in London. Um, beautiful moment, wasn't it, Ashok? Yeah, it was good fun. And, and now the world has it. To, Thank you. Has it forever. <laughs> <laughs> your, your civic responsibility as a musician was upheld beautifully when we were all shut down. Um, could you join me in thanking our guests? Uh, thank you, Ashok. Thank you, Linton. Thank you, William. And thank you, Chi Chi.